0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to senior physiologist and lead sleep scientist at the English Institute of Sport, Luke Gupta. Thanks for tuning in to episode 291 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, really excited to get Luke Gupta on the podcast today. So, senior physiologist and lead sleep scientist at the EAS, which is a role that exposes Luke to lots of different athletes across lots of different sports who have varying cha- varying schedules, varying uh, demands. So this is a really unique episode because it not only talks about sleep, but talks about sleep from various different angles, which is why I wanted to get Luke on. So if you have listened to previous episodes of the podcast where we have discussed sleep, I think all have come at it from a different angle and i think this is no different in terms of how luke approaches things and we go through kind of blue sky type discussions at the start which how should we approach sleep in sport to then dialing it down and how should we manage it and measure it um, in the environments that we're in so if you haven't checked out the previous episodes discuss sleep i've had ian dunican me uh shona halson uh, cherry mar all four that get brought up in this episode so i I was um obviously really pleased that that luke dropped them in so if you haven't checked them out make sure you do Um, but this is a really unique episode and i think it'll give a lot of context to to the certain things that we've chatted about on previous episodes so if you are interested in sleep managing monitoring and measuring you will uh, really enjoy this episode This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU-STEP from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So IMASU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro, and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Luke Gupta. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast this evening. I'm delighted to welcome Luke Gupta. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Thank you for tuning in and uh, thank you for coming on. Um, we've all got a little bit more time on our hands at this moment in time, but I, I, re- I understand that time is still precious, so thank you for coming on. Um, anyone that doesn't know who you are, you just want to give us a bit of background on yourself, education-wise and uh, and your current role slash roles.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, my current role is a senior physiologist with the English Institute of Sports. And uh, alongside that, I've recently taken up a role of uh, lead sleep scientist. So, that role basically consists of me going into sports and facilitating some understanding around the physiological demands of Olympic and Paralympic sports. And probably a bit more relevant to this podcast, um, looking at more how we can sort of um, help athletes really understand like the principles of sleep and how we can sort of harness sleep in a way that's going to facilitate uh, their health, well being, and performance. And then, no. sorry, <laughs> you go. no, no, I'm going to say excellent. So, you do you work across? You work across multiple
0: sports. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. So my role is quite unique in the sense that I'm not employed by a single sport. So I sort of basically run like a, a project based service. So at the moment, we're doing lots of work. In the lead-up to Tokyo, which has obviously been delayed by 12 months, but um, still sort of working towards that goal around basically preparing athletes for the heat and humidity and also uh, the time zone shift. So jet lag is quite a big topic on the agenda at the moment. Um, yeah, so those sort of that's the sort of role I do. Yeah. Okay. So
0: although it's going to be next year, it's still going to be called Tokyo 2020. <laughs>
1: yeah I think right. so yeah I did hear yeah. that the other day I thought okay this is gonna be very strange when we do get to 2021 that we have to pretend we're in 2020 still so, <laughs> so a bit of time travel there
0: yeah yeah absolutely so is there any specific sports that you are more allocated to or is it like you say more of an overall service that people can then tap into per sport
1: <laughs> yeah uh t- Yeah, so most sort of your linear energetic sports will have a physiologist that is employed outright by the sport but still work for the EIS. So your rowing, cycling, uh, athletics, for example. So um, they're they're basically my colleagues and we all work in the same team. So a lot of sports, though, don't have a physiologist because the physiological demands of that sport might not be as obvious or as clear-cut. Nonetheless, um, as we all know, physiology underpins... um, Pretty much everything that we do um, in sports science and also as athletes in terms of the demands of their sport. So, sports have an opportunity to sort of bring me into the sport and I can sort of help them facilitate discussions around um, recovery, um, travel, sleep, um, even just the physiological demands of their sport in terms of prescription of training. And then from there, we can sort of look at what are their priorities within. Um, everything else that's going on in the sport as you can understand there's lots and lots of competing demands for time and uh, money so um, where sort of physiology sits within that is sometimes quite competitive but sports have the chance to sort of delve into that in some detail and I can sort of help them through that process. Mm-hmm.
0: So with your geographical location you're uh, based at Bisham?
1: Uh, based at Bishop Abbey, yes, but um, I don't spend much time there. Um, a lot of our sports are based all over the UK, so I spend lots of times on trains and cars, so this is actually quite a welcome break. Now we're sort of in isolation for a little bit, so I can actually get my head down and sort of do some work. <laughs> mm-hmm. so,
0: yeah, absolutely. So how is this How's this period for you then in terms of just getting, getting work done? Is it being um, more difficult or less difficult?
1: Yeah, good question. It's uh, Well, for me, actually... One thing I probably didn't introduce since my job title is that I'm actually still writing up my PhD. So <laughs> seven years in, I'm still technically a PhD student. Um, so this has almost forced my hand a little bit in terms of getting my head down and actually writing the thing up. So uh, I've actually, yeah, had a lot of time on my hands to sort of really delve back into that and get it over the line, which is should be done in a matter of weeks. But um, going back to studies that I conducted back in 2013, which is sometimes quite a difficult place to be when you sort of realise some of the things that you decided to do and some of the things that you sort of said um, have sort of changed in seven years obviously but you know nonetheless you've got to tell a story with your PhD and your thesis so um, yeah nice, nice to sort of get into the writing um, and sort of also doing a bit of work around jet lag we're trying to sort of get some material sort of written um, on that side of things as well so yeah trying to get the stuff done that I don't normally get the chance to do. Uh So is the PhD based around jet lag? Uh, No. So the PhD is on sleep quality um, in elite athletes with a particular focus on measurement and management of sleep. So without sort of going into the long-winded answer of what it's about, um, basically trying to translate messages that have been around in sort of behavioral sleep medicine. So the clinical management of um, sleep disorders like insomnia, there's a whole body of work out there that's a lot more prevalent in terms of what's there if you can make that comparison to sports science so what we've tried to do is take those messages those frameworks and translate it into elite sport um, to see if that actually translates well and whether you can actually just use those models and techniques to sort of um, kind of set up um, a sort of sleep service as such and also kind of really sort of just go delve into the the process around how do you go about measuring sleep? How do you go about actually managing sleep in athletes, which sometimes get put on this pedestal as um, like superhumans, which they are in some regards, but at the same time they are just humans. So some of these messages do translate quite well. Um, it's just the context in which they sit is just slightly different.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's one thing that we were chatting about before in terms of the the amount of information that is out there. Uh, which is growing and growing in terms of sleep and its importance and making its way into the mainstream media with um, plenty of articles out there that people can, can, can get a hold of. But actually, if you went into a club, and this is definitely not from experience, but just what I'm assuming, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of knowledge, but when you actually get into the club and you've got 25 athletes playing potentially Saturday, Tuesday, there's a lot going on in other areas. Actually, making use of that knowledge and that information is is quite tough. So how should we be approaching sleep in a – we can use a team sport as an example if that if that works. How should we be approaching it on a kind of global level?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I suppose the way that sleep sits at the moment in sports science is that it's kind of a, a newcomer to um, so sort of the recovery game if you want to call it that so you've got other disciplines like nutrition psychology strength and conditioning that have obviously been around for many years now whereas sleep's sort of um, the new guy on the block and it's only really in the last sort of 10 years um, I think there's a paper published today actually that showed that since 2011 really is when we started to see this sort of exponential rise in sort of sleep research so it is relatively new but if you look at the literature and sort of the messaging that's coming out of that at the moment, it's, it's like, it's been there sort of for a long time, the sort of branding around messages about its importance and how many hours athletes sleep, athletes should sleep, um, the things that athletes should do to manage their sleep. But I don't think the knowledge is quite there yet in terms of how, the way we could be cut that prescriptive with it. But what's interesting about sleep and where it sits is that because of the way it is at the moment, the people sort of who manage sleep, who, Let's be honest, not every sport club or sport, if you're Olympic or Paralympic sport in the UK, um, has a sleep scientist. Um, and that in itself is, you could argue, is a discipline in its own right in terms of the physiology or the psychophysiology of sleep. Um, that's if you go down the line even further to sort of undergraduate, postgraduate degrees, you don't get really taught this stuff Um So that messaging, that sort of information is not really there for the everyday practitioner to sort of really delve into in a very systematic way. So the way that sleep sort of is approached at the moment is it's kind of been treated in the same way that nutrition or strength conditioning would be treated in the sense that it's quite prescriptive in the package of support that an athlete might get. And that's not necessarily how sleep operates. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Um, So... If you look at sleep, um, what's the best way to put this? Let's take like a, a block of strength training, for example. Uh, we know that when athletes go through a block of strength training, there's a very prescriptive package of training, a very prescriptive package of nutritional support, and the recovery they put around that will facilitate adaptation whilst balancing sort of the recovery needs of individual athletes. But the way that sleep works, it doesn't quite... Work like that. So, in the same sense that nutrition might be, you increase the protein intake of an athlete over a period of time to support their um, tissue repair, for example. Um, we can't really do that with sleep. Let's say that um, a period of continuous deep sleep is restorative and it repairs muscle. If you said that to an athlete, that oh, this week you need to go away and get more deep sleep. Like, <laughs> do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? How does how does an athlete actually access that? And the the truth of the matter is that the message that we give athletes really is not necessarily that sleep's really important for recovery and we know it is but that message is somewhat useless to an athlete what athletes need to appreciate and practitioners in a way is that the ability to fall asleep the ability to stay asleep this is how you access this stuff so there's a whole science out there about those two constructs and it's and they operate slightly differently so the other side of sleep which makes it a bit more a bit different um, to those other two things is that um again i use nutrition as an analogy because it kind of works that if we worry about our hydration status we don't become dehydrated but if you worry about your sleep um you can actually become very fatigued (laughs) and that can have an impact on your recovery so it's it's got such a like a special relationship in terms of how it operates in regards to the context of sport so how we treat it is slightly different um so it's quite automatic like that. And that's the message that I'm trying to say here is that sleep's this automatic construct. It's not something that you can prescribe and something that you can deliver as a set of rules. It's basically, you've basically got to create the circumstances and the principles that sit around it. And then in a way it just happens. But delivering that message to a group of athletes that are striving to be the best they can be and they want to sort of gain the extra percentages from anything they can get their hands on. So now sleep's on the block as a performance enhancers it's sometimes described as that that message is quite hard to deliver because in a way it's it's kind of going against how sleep operates because if you try and get it it stops it from happening so <laughs> yeah. that's do you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah 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 it's not as
0: if an athlete walks into the office of a snc coach and they go i want to do this and you go okay well let's go in there and do that yeah exactly. it's kind of not really that easy
1: is it no um which is that's why it's quite different. And that's where I think a a key message is that just appreciating that sleep just doesn't operate in the same way that other sports science disciplines do. Um, So like you said at the start of this, that there's so much messaging out there at the moment, which basically saying that sleep is almost the most important form of recovery. But if you look in terms of the research, there's not actually very much evidence to suggest that in comparison to say nutrition, um, is it more important is it not? It depends who you're talking to, really. Like myself, I'll probably say, yeah, sleep's more important. But if you speak to a nutritionist, I'll say, nutrition's more important. So everyone's sort of fighting for this very limited time when you get access to an athlete. And the messaging you deliver is all based on the individual. And sometimes I think um, how we approach sleep should be just for the first and foremost is just treating sleep science in its own right. but as you go down the line you'll realize that most of the problems that athletes have with sleep aren't necessarily one problem which you can solve. they span across a whole team. So in the English Institute of sport we obviously we have like a multidisciplinary team of practitioners, a nutritionist, a psychologist, a doctor, a strength conditioning coach and that's very much a multidisciplinary problem solving process with athletes to try and understand the context in which that sleep problem might sit. So again, you approach it from an individual level, you approach it from understanding the science of sleep, but fundamentally you approach it as a team and you sort of draw the expertise of the relevant people as and when you need it to sort of really delve into what is really going on with someone's sleep. So when you mentioned about it being
0: very prescriptive at the minute, and so how do we go about educating athletes that it's not just a do this, do this, do this, and therefore you're all good? it's more complex than that so how do we actually communicate that message that we can't just give you give you a sheet of paper and you follow it and it's
1: all good yes that's a great question um i suppose that this is where like i'm probably jumping the gun a little bit this is where like the measurement of sleep really comes into it Mm -hmm. so if you understand the individual as a sleeper what you understand is kind of what is their thoughts Around sleep, what are their behaviors around sleep? And I think that really tailors the message you're trying to deliver. So, let's say you're working with an athlete who's particularly anxious, um, an anxious individual, um, the likelihood is they're likely to be anxious about their sleep. And if they're an elite athlete and they've heard messaging around how they need to get, say, 10 hours sleep a night, um, what you probably find is that they adopt a certain Um, Routine or set of behaviours which basically makes them try to go to bed really early because if you want to get 10 hours sleep at night you basically need to spend half the day in bed which um, in a very conflicting schedule of an elite athlete that's quite difficult to achieve and whether an athlete actually needs that amount of sleep is debatable Um, as we all know we're all individuals and the guidance out there on sleep duration at the moment if you look at the National Sleep Foundation is seven to nine hours for an individual but six might be okay so even at like a, a a worldwide level we don't really know how much sleep an athlete an athlete needs let alone a human being so do you know what I mean so the individual that you um speak to will sort of give you an idea of sort of how that messaging will sit but that's an example that I can give you that will kind of bring it to life is I've had a similar situation with quite a few athletes where the night before competition, for example, they've like almost striving, really want to have a good night's sleep because they know there's this connection between sleep and athletic performance. So they feel like they need to sleep really well the night before a game. Um, So what tends to happen is an athlete who might be particularly anxious about their sleep will sort of try and get more than normal. Um, the same way that people sort of try to carbo load <laughs> before a marathon um, same sort of principle applies people tend to go to bed earlier because they want to give themselves more opportunity to sleep the night before competition but if you actually look at the mechanisms that actually challenge athletes sleep the night before a competition it's probably the hardest time for an athlete to get sleep um, and if you look at the things that regulate sleep so um, like sleep homeostasis so basically the the rule of thumb is here that the longer you stay awake, the sleepier you feel Um, circadian rhythm of your sleep. So we know that sleep happens at a certain time of day and that's usually at night. And then there's the, what we call the automaticity of sleep, which doesn't get spoken about very much, which is the psychological processes that are involved in the ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. So all three of those things are all challenged the night before a competition. So it's no wonder uh, athletes can't sleep at night, the night before a game. So going back to that um, story that I was telling, the the athlete who wants to sleep well and gives himself more opportunity will probably go to bed earlier than normal, which basically means that there won't be enough sleep pressure, we call it. So their drive to sleep won't be there. So the way I look at this is like an elastic band. So the the stretchier the elastic band, the more you stretch it, um, the more likely it's going to snap back, the stretchier it is. So if you go to bed too early, that elastic band's not very taught so when you let go of it it doesn't snap back as quickly and that sort of represents falling asleep that's not my analogy I've taken that from a book from uh, Michael Perlis um, I quite like it so that sort of mechanism is challenged and that's that behavior the athlete's adopting is not really um, aligning itself to that sort of regulator of sleep and then also because they're going to bed earlier they're not going to bed at their normal bedtime so the circadian rhythm of sleep is changed so They've been going to bed at the same time routinely for such a long time, then all of a sudden they go to bed earlier, like before a competition. It's the same way that you've all of a sudden start wearing the brand new pair of trainers for a marathon. Like you, you just wouldn't do that. But sometimes people do this because they want to give themselves more opportunity to sort of be the best they can be. And then finally, um, that automaticity, so kind of lending into the, the auto, how sleep is automatic is challenged just because they've got so much on their mind like they've got probably one of the most important events of their lives potentially an olympic or paralympic games the next day they're thinking about that they're not going to be able to fall asleep well so in that that situation the the messaging again of like an athlete needs to get 10 hours of sleep or nine hours of sleep is not helpful but what is helpful for an athlete in that situation is you actually talk them through the fundamental science of sleep and like i've just done with you there rob just highlight the things that regulate it you can understand why it goes wrong and if you can understand why it goes wrong you can understand the mechanisms of how you can target it so in this situation with this athlete um actually going to bed later than normal is probably better for them and they're probably more likely to get more sleep by going to bed later the reason for that is one you're playing into sleep homeostasis so you're going to be a lot sleepier Two, you're going to be roughly around your morning bedtime. If anything, it could be beyond your bedtime. So that's not going to challenge it as much. And then what we know is that sleepiness counteracts sort of any sort of cognitive activity that's going on in your mind. So if you want to go to bed really quickly, um, which sometimes is what athletes tend to report, is you make them go to bed later, which is sometimes quite a... It's a hard message to give people. Um, You need to go to bed later to get more sleep, um, which is not true every time, obviously. But the principle sort of holds true that the best way to sort of get good quality sleep um, is to sort of potentially go to bed later. And then that way you sort of ensure that the quality of sleep is good. They might kind of chop off a little bit of the sleep duration side of things. But nonetheless, they're more likely to wake up feeling refreshed and sort of prepared. Um, if you sort of take the construct of sleep duration out the window, which is sometimes quite challenged in that way. Mm-hmm. So in in that scenario, if an athlete does
0: struggle to sleep on a Friday night, for example, before a match on a Saturday, would you recommend trying to build that up through the week to n- knowing that that's going to be
1: uh, affected on the Friday night or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's, um, again, like the... It's, yeah, again, it's the messaging that sits around that with the athlete. So the the pressure sort of builds and builds as you get towards the competition. And um, obviously, the construct of sleep banking has been discussed on this podcast mm-hmm. before. But um, Yeah, so that sort of principle and how that works um, tend, tends to sort of feed into the athlete in a way that, yes, they can get normal sleep, um, assuming they're sort of scheduling around training and the lead up to competition isn't challenged as much and typically in olympic and paralympic sports most sports will be going through a taper um in the lead up to competition as, as most sports would so sometimes that fundamentally can change their sleep because they're not training as much um so they might not feel as tired before they go to bed they might have a bit more freedom to sort of um go to bed when they want to so their scheduling around their sleep might change so when we talk about sleep banking and we say like oh you just need to sort of optimize your sleep before you before an important event yes the principle works yes and laboratory studies it has shown to work in terms of sort of preserving cognitive function under sleep deprivation but how an athlete actually does that in practice sometimes quite challenging and usually when athletes are going off to these major competitions they're not exactly down the road they're usually sometimes or most cases on the other side of the world so when you're telling an athlete to make sure you optimize your sleep in the lead up to a competition, they might have other conflicting demands like um, spending time with family, seeing friends, all these other things that are important to them, which challenge that. So if you're telling an athlete to sort of um, optimize their sleep, they might think, well, actually, I'd much rather go out with my mates on a, a few days before the game to sort of get that social need, which is obviously just important. So yeah, what I'm trying to say here is that yes, that is important, and yes, athletes I think understand that. Um, but sometimes it's not the most important thing, and that I think it depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, and i would written down a couple
0: of points ago, but bucketing problems, issues that athletes have with sleep, and finding that yes, it's individual, but there's a lot of similar similarities within the within the individuals. Can you? identify some of them which may spark ideas into people's minds that when they're thinking about their athletes go okay i think that's his that's his issue that's her issue
1: yes yeah, no definitely um so i suppose the same way that a lot of strength and conditioning coaches will profile their athletes physically um you can do exactly the same with sleep um, you can profile your athlete as a sleeper. And I think at the moment, the way it's sort of treated is that sleep is just this one entity. And it's almost like saying, again, when nutrition started out, it, it probably was treated quite similar that we need to do something on nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, but as do well now know there's like 101 different avenues within nutrition which you can explore. And because sleep's quite new to this, uh, like where you go with it is sort of like, well, there's so many sort of possibilities. Um, And at the mirror, I don't think practitioners know quite where to go with it, but it's essentially knowing your tools um, and understanding the context in which those tools sit and how you use those tools to screen what you want to screen. So going back to your question, I suppose there's there's different components of sleep and there are many more, but if you want to put it simply, there's, there's three essential things, sleep duration, sleep timing and sleep quality. Um, those are the three things. And there's other ones which I know has been discussed on these po- podcasts before, such as sleep reactivity, um, daytime sleepiness, and all these things you can assess. Um, and then once you've kind of assessed those things, broadly speaking, um, you get an idea of what they're like as a sleeper. So are they a short sleeper, are they a long sleeper, are they fundamentally have good sleep quality, bad sleep quality? So they like to sleep late, sleep early, are they generally a sleepy person or alert person? Um does their sleep wobble under pressure and anxiety or stress? Or there's one of these sort of super sleepers that could just sleep anywhere, um, <laughs> no, matter the, no matter the challenge, Which they and they do exist. So it's, that's essentially what sleep profiling does. It just gives you a bit more information about the individual. So, and how you do that is not as complicated as it sounds. Yes, there's sort of um, tools which are gold standard and very precise and they measure exactly what you're expecting to measure um, so polysomography again has been mentioned on this podcast before um, but let's be honest i've spoken to athletes around this and they wouldn't go into a sleep lab <laughs> no, um, no. They, just, they just don't like the idea of being wired up and then the, the man in the white coat sort of sitting <laughs> over them with a clipboard that's that's the perception they get from it and i know it's it's not quite like that when you actually go through that process but that's the perception of it um, And then if you go right down to the very bottom of the pile in terms of the, well, actually, no, I think it's a good point in itself, that sleep questionnaires, I I suppose, sometimes get put at the bottom of the pile in terms of um, what they can deliver. And they usually get put in the bottom of the pile in terms of the precision and the accuracy side of things. So they give you like a subjective uh, angle to sleep, which very, very accessible, very cheap, very easy to do. Don't need a sleep specialist. You can hand these out for free. so that that's the plus side to it but essentially they they do a job they they tap into the athlete sleep experience which is fundamentally really really important when you're looking at athlete sleep and athletes are very in tune with their bodies, which sometimes I think people can forget, and they tend to know their sleep. And sometimes when I've put a sleep watch on an athlete, for example, for a period of days or uh, sometimes weeks, um, at the end of it, you get to it and say, oh, yeah, your, your sleep's a mess. And they go, well, of course, I know this. <laughs> um, um, I'm experienced... Yeah, exactly. I'm, ex- I'm experiencing this. Um, so sometimes I think it's it's very easy to kind of get attracted to the very precise gadgets and gizmos but if you go back to fundamentally what you're trying to achieve with that these questionnaires are actually very useful in a sense they do provide thresholds and buckets as you said before Rob so you can actually bin athletes into certain subgroups which gives you sort of very much a way of targeting one time and resource Um, because as you well know these practitioners in clubs sports um got a lot of other things to do Um, and sometimes whether sleep's one to invest in is like i said before competing with other things so if you sort of delivered a sleep profiling tool which consisted of lots of different questionnaires you probably get to the point quite quickly whether you know this is actually a problem or not for the squad and if it is a big problem for the squad, then you can probably invest a lot of time in it, time and effort into it to sort of get to the root cause of why is our whole squad sleeping poorly, for example. Um, or if a couple of individuals fall out of that, then that obviously gives you a little more of a targeted approach but again those those bins that come out of these things when you use these very sort of again they've been validated outside of elite sport Uh, they've been used in lots of different populations so these thresholds are shown to be sensitive and quite specific um, to what they're measuring but the key thing is sort of tying up the right tool to what you want to measure so for example um, daytime sleepiness is something that I explored in my PhD and This is quite a good example to describe. So for one study, I wanted to measure daytime sleepiness. So the gold standard for daytime sleepiness is something called the multiple sleep latency test. So the way that works is you simply, well, actually, it's not simple. That's the problem. Um, You basically basically get athletes into the sleep lab overnight. You do a night of polysomography, And then the next morning, they basically need to spend all day in the sleep lab. And they basically sleep for potentially 20 minute opportunities every two hours and there's four to five opportunities. So I fell over the first hurdle because I could not recruit a single athlete that was willing to devote their time um, to be wired up and spend the whole day with me in a sleep lab, um, which (laughs) probably sounds quite creepy in a way. but so I kind of had to tail back from that. And I basically used the one-nap model where we basically got athletes in for a single nap using polysomography. But even then, that was challenging enough in its own right. So we sort of, from that study, um, we actually looked at other constructs that might relate to that. So there's certain questionnaires that do correlate quite nicely with those sorts of measures. And you can use that as evidence to say, well, actually, this questionnaire is doing something. Um, So you can actually use this questionnaire and get a rough idea about what's going on in terms of their physiology and what type of sleep they are. And once you've kind of got that sort of level, the the poor sleepers will fall out of that quite easily. And then you can start delving into the the sleep watches. Then you can start delving into the more in-depth stuff. But again, with all of this stuff, again, which is a great message for practitioners, is that what these devices and questionnaires don't provide is that contextual information where that sleep sits so sometimes just having a conversation with someone gives you so much rich information about what an athlete's sleep looks like and their their perceptions, their attitudes towards sleep, all these sort of things that you might not be able to pick up from a sleep watch and a questionnaire, which basically punches out a number, um, which is again, quite objective. But sometimes the subjective stuff that comes out of that around like, oh, why don't you think you sleep well? Or just like having quite a very, not formal, but just, a very like targeted way of questioning an athlete to sort of get out that information, which is actually probably more useful to you as a practitioner, but also useful for the athlete because they can actually discuss their problems with someone.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any questionnaires out there
1: that you recommend? That uh, yes.
0: Validated?
1: Yeah. Yeah, plenty. Um, so for example, sleep quality, um, the Pittsburgh sleep quality index, um, is a great one. I've used it throughout my PhD. Um, and it's been validated in lots of different populations and it's been used frequently since the 1980s, I think. So there's a lot of data on this and those those thresholds um, are quite easy. If you score above five, you're a poor sleeper. If you score below five, you're not, which can be a little bit um, dichotomous in that sense. But nonetheless, you can delve into the information within the questionnaire as well, which gives you some context in terms of what makes up that score. So is it the inability to fall asleep? Is it, um, Problems falling asleep at night. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of get a bit more of a targeted approach. So that's quite good on the sleep quality. Um, sleep reactivity, I know um, Mita Singh spoke about um, sleep reactivity before, but uh, the Ford insomnia response to stress test, again, is a very simple item, um, nine items in total, and essentially basically describes different scenarios where your sleep um, will become under stress. And you basically respond by saying, yes, it's very likely or unlikely. And then if you score above a threshold of 18, for example, you're categorized as a reactive sleeper, which then I think sleep reactive is a great one really, because it's it's interesting because you can actually be a reactive sleeper without showing any other symptoms of poor sleep quality. So basically what that's saying is you could be an absolutely fine sleeper day to day. So if you do your profiling on like a normal day um, and you don't take into account sleep reactivity, as soon as you get to competition, travel, training stress, their sleep starts to wobble. So they almost fall through the net. So this sleep reactivity construct is so simple to administer and it gives you a bit of an idea of the dynamics of their sleep. So it gives you a subgroup of reactive sleepers. And interestingly, lots of athletes score really highly on that, um, which is a different construct, which I'll chat about in a second, I think, because I think it's mm-hmm. relevant. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so those, those two are examples. But yeah, so again, there's one for daytime sleepiness, um, which again, is, is easy to do and it's been used widely in other populations and it translates translates quite nicely um, to into elite sport. So, again, there's probably like a step before this, which I didn't really touch upon, but I think, again, it's relevant that in the same way at the moment we understand the physical demands of sports and they have fitness tests that are very bespoke to the sport. So, for example, you wouldn't do a, um, a submaximal fitness test with a weightlifter, for example, <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's just not um, aligned to their sport. And I don't think sleep's there yet in terms of understanding what are the sleep demands of the sport. And we know that sleep affects athletes differently. We know that different sport types affect sleep differently. So not every sport competes late at night. Not every sport has challenging training schedules. So all these different things will kind of give you an idea of like, okay, so what is it that's really challenging my sleep? And what do I need to know about my sport um, from a sleep perspective? To decide and essentially what this does is help decision making around what constructs do I need to find out the information that for me as a practitioner, I can make decisions with athletes, which one, tells me about them as a sleeper, but two, allows management to be targeted.
0: So we're just going to take a quick break in this episode with Luke. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the measuring and management of sleep in a Practical environment and how Luke has done both of them things in the environments that he works in across various different sports, various different environments with obviously a lot and a, a, a large range of athletes. So, really interesting part two coming up with Luke. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So, Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want, so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So they're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter, at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So, if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have a little look at what black box fitness can offer so you can head to their website which is blkboxfitness.com or for a more informal view of what they do head over to their instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in australia in the uk in europe etc so head over to their instagram which is at blkboxfitness and they're the same on twitter yeah that, that, that's super and one thing that yeah no absolutely one thing that keeps coming out is in my mind this link with and from a very much a day-to-day process is it link with psychology and the psychologist is this yes. does that does that in terms of a day-to-day with you as a sleep scientist is that link super close as i imagine it
1: will be uh yes yeah, yeah. very much so so i suppose you could argue that sleep is very much a physiological constructs it's a physiological process where it's, it's basically neurophysiology and the way the brain works but in terms of the things you prescribe actually don't you don't prescribe I said that earlier um, <laughs> you create the circumstances where yeah. sleep's likely um it's basically psychology it's all about changing the cognitions and the behaviors of athletes which essentially as a physiologist um I've had to sort of delve into that world in quite a big way. So for the past seven years, my PhD, um, fortunately my supervisor, Professor Kevin Morgan, who's um, director of the Clinical Sleep Research Unit at Loughborough University, he's a, he's a psychologist. So um, I've been sort of guided through that process. So now I'm quite comfortable about working in that space, but um, sometimes it's tricky. And I, I do sort of lean on um, psychologists and sports to sort of work with me on this. And like I said before, um, lots of different practitioners input to this so nutritionist would input to it a doctor would input into it to sort of rule out other things that might be going on with sleep because as we well know that sleep is not necessarily a problem in its own right it can be a symptom of something else um, which where the mental health side comes into it so it can get quite complicated in terms of how you're managing sleep but yes the psychology of it is fundamental Um, and sometimes there's I suppose practitioners who don't feel comfortable working in that space or at least sort of leaning on someone who does um, if you don't have the opportunity to or don't have a psychologist in your team it's kind of like well what do you do mm-hmm. um, but essentially it's in a way we're all psychologists because of we all sort of work with athletes we're all trying to change behaviors we're all trying to change um, cognitions around certain topics but um, yeah so try and, so kind of a pseudo psychologist I suppose um, without sort of stepping on anyone's toes at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the recommendation towards
0: the questionnaires, if people do go on the objective route, is there any recommendations about where to start or where not to go? In terms of devices? In terms of of devices, sorry, yes.
1: Uh, Yes, yeah, there's... um... So again the if you go down the medical grade sort of route um there are a couple of devices on the market which I think have been mentioned already on this podcast so um like Philips Respironics um, yeah. motion Camtech motion watch so they range in the between 500 and 1000 pounds and so it's quite expensive for a watch yes, and sometimes yeah. when you give them to an athlete there's like this little plastic thing which looks like a bracelet and you tell them how much they cost and they don't believe you <laughs> um so I've, I've had quite a few athletes that have naturally misplaced them um because obviously they don't wear it all the time they have to take it off for training um because they're not allowed to wear them so naturally these things go missing so if you're a department with quite a tight budget um one they're expensive and sometimes they don't come back so um and and again it comes back to what you're trying to, to measure so what a sleep watch basically is trying to get you to do is look at someone's sleep patterns so what does their sleep look like over a period of time so when you take into account different scenarios rest days training days um travel all these different scenarios using a sleep watch you can sort of nicely quantify that in a way and it provides quite a nice bit of biofeedback um because an athlete can actually visualize their sleep for the first time whereas normally um they don't see it because obviously you don't see your sleep you mm-hmm. sort of go unconscious it's yeah. not of like when you eat a meal you see exactly what you're eating um which yeah. sleep, sleep it's completely different so sometimes it's quite enlightening to people to see visually what's going on with their sleep um but and again that's that's where the sort of the precision versus sort of adherence um mm-hmm the thing you're measuring sort of comes into it so sleep diaries do exactly the same thing so sleep diaries simply is you answer a few questions every morning about your sleep um and you can actually get apps that sort of help you do this and they actually score it for you at the end and you get the same information um what's probably different is that it might not be as objective just because it's come from an athlete sort of experience and they're sort of recalling um what they did so for example, if with a sleep diary, one of the questions is well, actually not not with a sleep diary, but most sports will have a question in their well-being monitoring, which happens on a daily basis. How much or how long do you how long do you sleep for? And what what how? Do, this is quite a difficult question if you actually break it down. So what athletes have to do is appraise how long it took them to fall asleep. If they woke up a lot, how long were they awake for? And then they wake up at a certain time in the morning, and then they kind of write down a number so this is very much a an estimate but what's actually quite useful and probably a bit more rigid is um, time in bed so most athletes know what time they go to bed they know what time they wake up because most people either set an alarm or they even just look at the clock before they go to bed so in some sports I've worked with they don't use sleep duration they just use time in bed because in a way it's a bit more of a um sort of more robust measure whereas sleep duration you probably get a bit of subjectivity around how am i feeling this morning like if i don't feel very good i'll probably report it a bit lower so there's probably like a do you know what i mean it's like a bit of a oh, something that comes into it and obviously um but how the sleep diary works is that it sort of gives you individual questions and then it sort of adds up the time that you spent awake versus time spent in bed and then you get like a nice construct of sleep efficiency which um basically is just that really so if you spend all your time in bed asleep is 100 percent if you spend half your time in bed asleep it's 50 percent and that that's quite a nice way to give a nice overview of what an athlete's doing in in their bed but essentially if you ask an athlete like i said before you kind of get a similar answer on a, a much higher level so if you want to know if someone's got a sleep problem most people know this you can just ask them a question um, it's when you want to sort of go into the detail of sort of what's actually going on on a day-to-day basis that's where well sleep watches can be quite handy um, and again like I said as in terms of an intervention they're great to sort of see if athletes actually adhering adhering to sort of the prescription of not, not I keep saying that um, the, <laughs> the, and this, the, the behaviors are trying to make them achieve yeah so there's there's other devices
0: like rings have you got any experience with that or would people? advise that or not
1: yes um yeah there's, i have actually had a sport um who used the ring um and again mixed message i know there's been a validation study on it yeah. which sort of shows that the the sleep time metric on it is quite good um but again from a logistical point of view i know a lot of athletes who use that device have managed to lose the ring because it's even smaller than a, a sleep watch yeah. and again it's another bit of a thing to wear but again, it comes back to what you're trying to achieve. Um, Again, I think the the idea of having something that they wear daily, like is a little bit unrealistic. And in a way, if you go to what the athlete is and at the end of the day, they're humans, like they have so much about them that's tracked um, and their training um, now now sleep's part of that. So almost like 24-7, they're being monitored. And sometimes that can feel a little bit big brother for them. So sometimes just the process of sleep monitoring full stop um, can make athletes feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that's where I think the if it's accessible, yes, then it, and it is doing a job in terms of if you want to know how long someone's sleeping and you want to provide a bit of objectivity, then the ring will probably do a job. Um, and things about these devices that are quite nice is that the data management system that sits behind it it's really nice it's really attractive do you mean you get like a a breakdown of like how long you slept for nice visual whereas if you go to the more medical grade stuff um you get lots of squiggly lines on a graph with with blue blocks so it's not as visually attractive so i can see why people go to them and they're half the price so i I think yes it's like sleep scientists are sort of really struggling at the moment to sort of find a place in the middle which is you're holding on to your scientific integrity in the sense you want to use something which is really like scientifically valid it's reliable it's got the black and white paper that sticks behind it but at the same time if an athlete's not going to use it so if i go back to the sleep watch for example like the gold standard protocol is seven to 14 days alongside a sleep diary so if you don't get the sleep diary with it um when you come to actually analyze the data you're actually playing guesswork a little bit you basically see where the light's turned off because the light goes low the activity's dropped um you're basically just looking at lines you're thinking like wow i've got to estimate this and an athlete's worn it for three months like they've invested they've invested so much time in wearing this watch and i've got a feedback information that i know isn't going to be as accurate because they haven't adhered to the other side to it which is the the sleep diary side to it so when you look at it like that you think well is it is it good getting precise data which is, hasn't been done properly or is it better to use a device which is probably not as precise but an athlete's more likely to do it if that makes sense so I think that's where we're at, at the moment with it and there's no real right or wrong answer to it it's uh, like like most these things most sports might get approached by a company and say oh we'll give all your athletes this for free um, and mo- more times or not sport will say yeah why not um, and then they, they tackle it and then sometimes that's a difficult one to manage because you end up sort of Backtracking a little bit because a lot of athletes start using it. They start saying, Oh, this told me I did this. And um, again, depending on the athlete you're working with, I think there was a study published from Oxford University that showed that um, you can actually change someone's daytime alertness and well being from just seeing whether they slept poorly or not from a watch, irrespective of whether they actually slept well or not. So if right. the watch says you sleep bad, the likelihood is you're going to feel pretty rubbish the next day. Um, so that's where the precision of it comes into it and again leaning on these devices to tell you how you sleep um, doesn't quite lead into how sleep works in a way because um we know that most people have done this every day since the day they were born like people know their sleep you know if you slept badly we tell athletes all the time to listen to your bodies like if you feel really tired today tell us and we'll adjust training accordingly well in most cases you'd like to think that happens um but um again same with sleep like you wake up in the morning you feel a certain way and there's a reason for that sometimes it's sleep sometimes it's not but you you have an experience of your sleep um which you know you know if you slept well or not you don't need a device to tell you that Um, and that's where those devices can be quite dangerous in a way because it can change someone's well-being simply just by looking at a screen whereas um, appreciate that people are quite keen to sort of evaluate themselves in this day and age because that seems to be what everyone wants to do these days is sort of track every part of their body <laughs> on a daily basis to see sort of how they're getting on in regards to their health and well being. But I think if we take a step back from that sort of approach um, and get athletes to really sort of tune into what's going on. One, you get a bit of reflective practice as such around you get people to really. Kind of reflect on how they slept and what they did before bed that might not have led to that like night, good night's sleep as opposed to just cracking on as normal and then relying on a watch to tell you what you did and kind of how you slept.
0: Mm-hmm. So moving away from the, I suppose short term measurement to see if someone's got an issue, but a kind of long term managing of sleep and something that's, I suppose, gonna athletes going to adhere to is the one line the one question in the wellness questionnaire how did you sleep or how many hours did you sleep or how many hours were you in bed etc is that enough for us to manage that on a
1: monthly yearly olympic cycle basis uh yeah great question um i, th- I think it is in a way So, okay. what what that information tells you um maybe not from an individual basis of this person is a problem sleeper, but in a way it does because that would be consistently low. So if someone's a poor sleeper, they'll be telling you on a daily basis, My sleep is terrible. Um, and then that will flag um, in the wellbeing monitoring system, or if someone's checking in every day, someone will know if this person's sleeping poorly. Um, and then you can sort of start a conversation. So it's a conversation starter, and it's a really simple one. Um, because athletes are also filling in lots of other questions about other things so it is a conversation starter but what that sort of data does is because it's being tracked anyway you can kind of get quite a nice season sort of long data set which if you look at like how sleep works in terms of what challenges it it's very predictable we know that sleep is challenged at certain times of the season um so we know that from this sort of well-being data you can see like as on the squad level, people's sleep starts to deteriorate to lead up to competition. And we know that after long haul flights, you can sort of see which individuals are struggling. Very broadly speaking, it sort of it does a job on that level. Um, but I suppose it's it flags, it flags, it put they put a hand up, I suppose, when they sort of do that, and then you can attend to that. And that's when sort of the sleep battery of assessments can come out and you sort of delve into the detail of sort of, okay, what's really going on with your sleep here. But if you're doing the sleep profiling thing regularly, in the same way that you would do physical profiling regularly then you probably should know what this type of sleep what type of person is in terms of a sleeper so that information in your armory coupled with that sort of daily monitoring which sometimes you could argue it might be a bit excessive but it is there that's part of the culture of elite sport that well-being monitoring on a daily basis can be useful because it sometimes if you've got a squad of 30 40 players and in, some, in the world I work in, a lot of these sports aren't even centralised. They're all over the country, sometimes the world. So checking in on how they're doing is really challenging. And that are, it basically allows them to sort of input how they're feeling on a day-to-day basis, which then you can sort of follow up with further questioning around what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, with these predictable periods
0: of just using the Olympic sports, for example, because obviously competition in certain stages of the year is a lot more spread out than, than a team sport if there's unpredictable periods of um, lack of sleep, poor sleep quality, poor sleep duration, is there any recommendations? I know this is a huge question, and, like you say, multifaceted, but is there any recommendations that you can do and you can uh, put in place prior to these periods that you know things are going to maybe deteriorate that will help that period?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think that is the where we're at with this at the moment with sleep science and sport is I think we've been very good at kind of talking the talk, but um, when it comes to walking the walk, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the management that we put in to sort of really help athletes sort of uh, not improve their sleep. So that's the wrong word, sort of maintain their sleep when it's challenged. Um, And part of it is, is just that sometimes your sleep is going to be challenged and sometimes accepting that is quite difficult for an athlete to do but sometimes that's part of it but it goes back to the again that where we started it, this podcast around understanding what regulates sleep so if you can understand what regulates it like i said before you can understand how it goes wrong and if you know that let's say in professional football you've got like a, a late night game as you know you said olympic sport let's see let's yeah. use um hockey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's use hockey yeah very similar um a late night game for example we know that a lot of athletes' sleep is going to be challenged. But then the question is, what aspect of their sleep is going to be challenged? So we know that after, in the Olympic Games, for example, um, their sleep is going to, Basically occur later because their sleep the game will finish late their media commitments um they'll probably go to the canteen at the olympic village to have a meal um there might even be a coach debrief they have to travel from the olympic venue where they've competed back to olympic village so all this time adds up and before you know it they're in bed at 3 a.m and then they might have to be up at a certain time or they might not have to be up a certain time so just by definition sleep duration in that instance is um, disrupted is compromised, and you can't you can't do much about that. That's just that's just scheduling, um, and then you've got sleep timing. So as I said, the other side of um, sleep. So that's compromised because you've basically gone to bed a lot later than normal. So your your new bedtime for that night is three a.m. So the likelihood is um, that your wake up time might, is not going to move. So in some people, they'll be up like a light bulb. Um, at normal wake-up time which is so frustrating for athletes who are sort of wired up that way but again that's the that's just how sleep works in some instances and the other side to it then is like well what what can athletes actually manage because if their duration and their timing is just fundamentally out of their control what can they do well the one thing is in their control is sleep quality so typically what an athlete does I don't think every athlete does this but the odd athlete that I've worked with who's kind of asked me this question they tend to sort of go to others. they need to rush to get to bed because they need to get their set number of hours of sleep um when it's already compromised. So as soon as they get back to the hotel, the thing to do would be right, I need to go to sleep. And they deploy what we call sleep effort. Yeah. Like they try, they try, they try to sleep and it doesn't quite happen. Then they try even harder to sleep and before you know it, they go around in circles and then thoughts start to enter the athlete's head around their daytime performance the next day might be compromised. I might not feel very well the next day. My risk to illness and injury will be increased the next day. All these thoughts up in your head, with that in itself is going to disrupt their ability to fall asleep. So the messaging there is almost like, well, we know that sleep is an automatic thing, and just by thinking can disrupt it. So why not actually go back to your hotel room and actually just spend some time relaxing, like do what you want to do, relax in the same way that you would do on a normal evening like try and ignore the clock which i appreciate it's a very difficult thing to do when it's crying out to you that it's three o'clock <laughs> in the morning but it's that sort of process of if you actually get three to four hours sleep of good quality that's probably better than getting slightly longer sleep that is very fragmented and broken consisting of long times to fall asleep awakening and that's that's what we don't really know about the research at the moment is yes we're saying that um good sleep facilitates performance and bad sleep may impair performance but what is it about sleep that we impair and what is the effect of that on performance so sleep quality versus sleep duration so if I got an athlete who's slept for say very small amounts but they've done that really well versus an athlete that might have slept for longer but that's very fragmented and broken but the duration of that is a lot longer what is the impact of that on performance so, you know I mean, we don't really know the answer to that question, but in the terms of an athlete management um, point of view, what matters here is that you want to work with the things that you can control. And sometimes, like, for example, in that instance, throw sleep hygiene at them. Um, so a list of behaviors that can facilitate um, sleep or hamper sleep. Isn't going to cut it because you've already broken five or six of those rules. Because one, you might have had caffeine before a game. Two, um, you've done exercise very close to bedtime, probably at your bedtime in some yeah. instances. <laughs> train late at night. Um, uh, or there's, there's a few others as well which are compromised. So sleep hygiene doesn't really work in that instance, and, and nor should it because the mechanism that's disrupting sleep on the night before, comp- on the after competition, isn't um, behaviours like going on your phone. So that's not going to make much difference. It's understanding that it's physiological arousal which is the, the player here and it's all about sort of how do you sort of bring athletes down from that high um, and allow sleep to come um, automatically as it should so when you delve into it like I've done with you there Rob you sort of get to understand the, con- the contextual side of it with an athlete but also the sleep science of it and that's that's a process I tend to go through with sports it's just literally talking through scenarios and getting people to walk you walk through it so yes, an athlete's get it back, back to their room. But I can say to you, right, relax for 30 minutes. But it's like, well, actually, what are you going to do? And this is something um, Professor Colin Espy sort of told me um, when I went to one of his workshops in Oxford. Uh, I think It was earlier this year, actually. Like I said before, that um, it's, it's all about getting people to walk the walk um so when you do talk to athletes about this here's here's sleep hygiene 101 um or relax for 30 minutes like what are you actually going to do like talk me through it i'm gonna sit up in my bed i'm gonna read a book what book are you gonna read like get them to really tell that story and then before you know it they've got like a plan of action before the before the event has happened because we know that's going to happen from previous events we know that's the case but when it comes to the event that matters they've almost got like a tried and tested routine which they've know they're confident in which essentially what it's all about is making sure that athletes are confident in the management that you're giving them and it is just that it's management it's not like this magic pill that's going to enhance sleep and make them super sleepers because that's just not how it works it's sort of managing it the best you can under the circumstances which they're in does that answer your question absolutely absolutely so we're coming up to an hour so I'm going to
0: let you crack on with your evening but so, thank you for giving me time. If anyone wants to dive into any more detail with this kind of stuff, and I know we've had I've had previous people on like Shona and and Mita and Ian as well, um, but I think this has given a real different perspective, which I think has been great. So, if anyone wants to dive into it more detail, what's the best place to contact you, Luke?
1: Um, so, Twitter. Um, I'm very active on Twitter, um, and then I suppose if anyone sort of look at any of the research that I've done over the years, then um, ResearchGate is probably one for that so my Twitter handle is LukeGup86 uh, but I can I can give that to you um, in a second perfect and your research gate is that just I'm guessing just put your name in you'll, you'll pop up uh, yes yeah so uh, you type in anyone's name uh, with research just next to it their profile yes. tends to pop up yeah Done that many a time
0: yeah <laughs> perfect well thank you very much really appreciate your time again and uh, and we'll catch up soon no problem thanks for having me on the podcast pleasure thanks mate. Cheers, Rob. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 291 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I can't believe it's actually 291 episodes of the podcast that has been put out, but this adds to the really interesting bank of conversations I've had around sleep. So massive thanks to to Luke for uh, for coming on and sharing his experiences. So if you want to dive more into this it, into this subject, uh, Ian Dunican, uh, me to sing. Cherry Ma and Shona Halson's been on twice as well. If you look back through the episode, through the podcast archive, you can find them in there. So, also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU, Black Box Fitness, and Kitman Labs for sponsoring and supporting this episode today. So, the podcast could not run its current form without them, guys. So, big thanks to all of them for their constant support, especially in this difficult time. So, if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do. But if you want to watch on YouTube, you can also head over there and watch the video of this episode. Um, every episode will be put on YouTube from now on with the video, obviously the video accompanying that, not just the audio over an image. Um, start trying to keep to the right-hand side of the, of the page, because the left-hand side is me. Is me. So, um, yeah, not the best view, but, um, but we'll, we'll we'll work with it as we can. So thanks
1: for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.